time tonight. I'm just going to thank God for the word here. We're getting through this book, just a few more chapters to go. And I hope the reoccurring theme of Jesus' supremacy and what a great high priest we have and all the benefits of the new covenant. I hope all of that's encouraging you tonight. Amen. Uh, it's a powerful book. You know, most scholars think that Paul wrote it. His writing style is reflected in some places, but I do believe because he's speaking to a Jewish mindset here, he uses different literary uh, devices, and sometimes it doesn't seem like Paul, but um, some of these arguments are very circular in the sense that they're reoccurring themes, and I hope that uh, you're picking up on those themes because they are exactly what the Holy Spirit's trying to get in our hearts, amen? God doesn't say stuff twice because he's trying to fill up pages. Amen? Everything in God's word is living, breathing, and God-ordained. So, Father, we thank you tonight for Hebrews, and we thank you that as Gentiles being grafted in, we didn't understand some of these things of the, the blood covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law covenant, but, Lord, I thank you so much that you saw fit to graft us in as the wild olive branch. <laughs> some of us are pretty wild branches. But Lord, you loved us and you drew us and you woo us and you, you brought us into the fold and we're connected to the root, the fatness of the olive, the oil of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that, Lord, tonight. So open Hebrews up to us as Gentiles to let us know what a glorious thing you've done in redeeming us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Sister Kim, come and read chapter 10. Good evening, Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. Then he says, And their sins and their lawless deeds 
I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, <clears throat> having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through the reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. <clears throat> For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, for of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. Amen. It's good to listen to a whole chapter like that. Doesn't it soothe your soul? And Tom, how's your soul? Soothed? Lots in here. I'm going to try and do it justice. Three pages of notes. So, uh, Verse 1 through 18 there's a big chunk here nailed down the concept of the supremacy of Christ. That's one of the themes of the book over and over again. And his one-time offering that was offered for sin, it's a one-time sacrifice. It's not perpetual sacrifice. We talked about that last time we were together, that some churches teach that Jesus has to die over and over again, that the body and blood, that when you take communion, it's actually the body and blood of Jesus Christ. No, he died once. He rose from the grave. He's alive forevermore. He's not dying over and over again. Someone say amen. And now, this idea of Jesus being supreme is a hard sell 
to the Jewish perspective and the, and the idea of one sacrifice and you're finished, one and done, that's a hard sell to their perspective. Why? Because everything they knew about the sacrificial system was continual offerings over and over again. And we talked about that. They had to bring offerings, yearly offerings, sin offerings, peace offerings, and they had to do it constantly. The offerings covered limited uh, amounts of sin, maybe one sin, maybe, you know, uh, there was times where, you know, we talked about the fact that uh, people would have to be ritually cleansed. Uh, if you even look into modern Judaism about uh, if, if a, a, a Jew is touched by someone who is a Gentile and they're unclean, uh, if you touch a, a, a Jewish woman or a Jewish man, some, some of them have to go through ceremonies and be cleansed and stuff. It's a big deal. And you say, well, where did that all come from? The law. So this is ingrained in them. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to untangle that because there's a new covenant. Now, verse 1 through 3, again, the law was a shadow of things to come. The law wasn't going to stay. It was to be surpassed. Uh, that continual yearly sacrifice for sin that was made never made the sinner perfect. And that's what, that's what the point is here. That, you know, otherwise, it, it says here, um, from those things itself can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually every year make those who approach perfect. So it didn't take away the sin. It didn't take away the guilt. It says in verse 2, otherwise they would not have ceased to doing the offering. So if that, if that system would have worked, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. Amen? Jesus didn't die because he had nothing better to do. Hello? He died because it was the only hope for us. So if the if the sacrificial system would have covered sin and removed guilt and made the sinner perfect, they never would have stopped doing that. It, it would have worked and it would have been a path to God, but it was imperfect and it was given so that it could be surpassed. Verse 3 makes the point that the yearly offerings were made, they never made the conscience of the sinner free from guilt. So think about that. If you walk around guilty all the time, then you better check if you're really saved and you really have confessed your sin, amen? As Christians, when we confess our sin, we should feel uh, forgiven. Anyone? I mean, now, if you, if you don't feel forgiven, if you're constantly under condemnation, if you, if you constantly feel convicted, then we need to look into our hearts and say, am I approaching God by faith or am I approaching him by works and then now I'm under the law and I feel constantly, you know, like I don't measure up. This is good. This is good. Because the enemy tries to put that on all of us. Oh, you're not forgiven. Oh, you blew it. Or how many times are you going to ask forgiveness for the same sin? When we come to the Lord and we confess and we repent, we should feel forgiven. That didn't happen with the blood of animals and the sacrifices they made, apparently. So there was a distinction here. Verse 4, it was... Uh, impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. We understand that. Why? Because it was not a perfect sacrifice. No matter how blameless or spotless the animal was, nothing compares to the blood of Jesus. Amen. Verse 5 through 7 highlight the point that God was never really thrilled about receiving sacrifices, even though he required them in the law that he gave. And think about that. God gives them the law. It's a covenant that they're going to work in. But, you know, God didn't go up in heaven. You know what? I'm going to have them offer me, you know, the blood of bulls and this. I could really use some steak. That's what I like. You know, I want to smell burning steak. I want, to, I, I want meat offerings. No, God wasn't into that. Understand, it was just the Band-Aid on the wound that Jesus would eventually heal. So 
the blood of bulls and goats. They didn't take away the sin. They didn't please the Lord. He wasn't thrilled about receiving such things. Uh, you have, he said, you have not desired sacrifice and offering, but you have prepared a body for me. Ah, he, he wanted his son to once and for all deal with sin. You have not taken pleasure, verse 6 says, in whole burnt offerings and in offerings for sin. Then he said, behold, I have come. It is written of me, the scroll of the book, to do your will, O God. So what he really wanted was to send Jesus. Why? Because Jesus could do it once and for all. He didn't want a perpetual you know, offerings of meat and, and smoke and, and burn the fat. And there was all these procedures, never took any pleasure in it. And understand that, you know, it was a system that met, was meant to be eclipsed. Uh, Jesus, his answer for sin was to prepare his body for it. So he came to die. What was Jesus's mission when he came to, you know, start a church? No, to, no, he wasn't here to start a church, to be worshiped, to set up a kingdom. No, he was, he came to die. He was born to die. He, his body was prepared for sacrifice so that he could break the power of sin. Verse, Jesus says, I've come to do your will, O God. There's a picture of perfect submission, the son submitting to the father. You know, the father prompted the son to come, to leave his heavenly home, and Jesus was obedient to it. So Jesus didn't come to do his own will. He came to do the father's will. And we shouldn't be here to do our own thing. We should be here to do God's thing. Amen? Amen. A lot of Christians, (laughs) that's a good place to clap. A lot of Christians get saved and they're like, woo, I'm glad I'm not going to hell, but now I'm just going to get busy about doing my own thing. And you know what? There's no joy in a life like that because until we lose our life, we don't find it. So doing my thing doesn't bring me peace and joy and fulfillment and purpose, but doing God's thing does. So understand that Jesus, his body was prepared as an offering for sin. He came to do the will of his father. Verses 8 through 10 provide a summary of what's happening in the old and new covenants. Let's check check this out. It says, after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you have not desired, so we've established that, nor you have taken pleasure in them, so God wasn't thrilled with them, which are offerings according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. There it is. The old covenant passes away. The new covenant is established. Verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. There's that idea again, his body sacrificed for us once for all time, one and done and no perpetual sacrifice. So that's important there. The covenants were all about transition, the old giving way to the new. Now listen to me, if we refuse to approach God by grace, we'll we'll default to being under the law. You say, but the law passed away. Oh, but you could live under it if you want. If you refuse grace, then you're under law. Now how does the law function? It gives the sinner the knowledge of sin. I try to keep the commandments. I realize I'm an abject failure. I I can't save myself. I can't change myself. I can't have two good days in a row. Anybody? It's like finding a four-leaf clover. I had two good days in a row. But you realize that you know, the old covenant has to pass away so the new can take effect. If we refuse grace, we'll be under the law, and it'll bring us conviction, hopefully that leads to repentance. Jesus came as the answer to the old sacrificial system. Jesus came to not abolish the Old Testament, but to complete it, amen? So that's important for us to understand. Uh, 
unlike the perpetual sacrifices of animals, Jesus' offering was complete. Why? Because it paid the price for sin. And that's what we have to understand here. The wages of sin is what? Somebody has to die. And an animal dying or me dying is an insufficient sacrifice to answer the legal requirement for what sin costs. But only Jesus' perfect, blameless spotless life him being fully man fully god he was the perfect sacrifice that's why his body was prepared so verse 11 through 13 after jesus's one-time sacrifice what does he do he sits down and we've talked about this before another reoccurring theme in the book we're going to talk about him sitting down about that posture and about what god is doing uh, while he sits down so jesus said it was finished on the cross and he wasn't kidding he really meant it. And when he got up to heaven, when he was done, you know, rising from the grave and appearing to his disciples and giving them the great commission and ascending into heaven, what did he do? He sits down. Why is that significant? Because anyone who's seated shows completion and authority and power. If you look at the book of Revelation, when all, all of us are in the throne room, the, the elders and the are all seated. What does that show? It shows completion. It shows authority. You know, the, the, being seated, God sits on his throne. What does that mean? He has no rivals. He has no challenger. He's all-powerful. Jesus seated is good news for us. If Jesus was still running around busy trying to, you know, tie up the loose ends or put out this brush fire or take care of that or something, no, that would be a problem for us, amen? It is finished, and he is done, and he, he sat down, and that's good news for us. Uh, the, the fact that he sat down, verse 13 talks about he's waiting for something. What? We've heard this before. It's a reoccurring theme. For the Father to make his enemies his footstool. What is this all about? Well, positionally, we're holy and spotless and blameless, but sanctification is a process. Do you get that? So we're being made sanctified. We're being made holy, and we're, we're, we're in process. Well, there's also another process that's going on, and that's the process of the fact that Jesus destroyed the power of sin, yet sin still has power right now in the earth. It still has bite. It still has sting. Why? Because if people refuse grace, they're under the law, and, they, and they're, they're stuck in their sin. So sin has been dealt with, but it's not completely dealt with yet. In the stopgap period between now and then, you say, well, when is it going to be dealt with? When Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom of millennial reign, when he finally deals with Satan and he's thrown into the abyss for eternity and it's done, that's when sin is finally brought to the end. In the meantime, the devil is trying every way to cheat, lie, steal, kill, destroy, and do what he does. So Jesus broke the power of sin, yet he hasn't dealt with it completely to the point where it's over. So he's waiting for the Lord to make his enemies his footstool. Will it happen? You bet it'll happen. It's destined to happen. It's got to happen. It's just a matter of time. You say, well, what's taking so long? Did you ever think that? Hurry up. I'm tired of these struggles. I'm tired of pain. I'm tired of sin. I'm tired of all the things that have to do with the flesh. Anybody? God knows in his perfect time. You say, what's he waiting for? He's waiting for every last soul who will call upon Jesus to be saved, amen, before he pulls the trigger and finally deals with the devil. Now, you say, well, I'm saved, so I wish he'd hurry up. But what about when you weren't saved? Weren't you glad he had patience then? 
I'm thankful he waited for me. I'm thankful he waited for most of you. I, I mean, I'm thankful he waited for you. So that's what's going on. His enemies will be his footstool. He's waiting on the Father, but he's seated. It's, it's complete. It's finished. Verse 14 needs no commentary at all. Listen to this. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Wow. One offering, one and done. The process of sanctification has been set in motion by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He is perfecting us as saints. You and I are sinners saved by grace. Now we're saints, and he is sanctifying us. What does that mean? He's, conf- he's bringing the process of holiness to us to conform us to his image. Amen? The, the, pro- the, the byproduct of my life shouldn't be a better version of Rick. If that's, all, if that's all I am is a, a better version of Rick, that, that is not going to cut it. I need to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Like John the Baptist, I've got to decrease, he's got to increase until he, I'm swallowed up in him. That's the sanctification process, amen. You know, religion says, well, let's just make a better version of the sinner. Let's just clean it up a little bit. Or let's just compare it to worse sinners. You know, you're a sinner, but, but these guys are worse here, so, you know, we're elevated. No, that just doesn't work. God doesn't grade on a curve, amen. We're either lost in our sin or we're saved by grace through faith. So there's all these doctrines kind of tucked in there. Jesus is seated. He's waiting. Uh, That one-time offering is uh, fueling the sanctification process in all of our lives. Verse 15 through 17, cite the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning the effects of the new covenant. So we got a new covenant in effect here. And the Holy Spirit is involved, as always. Uh, Verse 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We got that. Now listen. And the Holy Spirit, verse 15, also testifies to us, for after saying, This is the covenant which I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and write them on their mind. Then he says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will no longer remember. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, an offering for sin is no longer required. So there's the the byproduct of the new covenant there. Uh, What's going to happen is, you know, as we're being transformed into the image of Christ, the Holy Spirit is involved, and he's... It's now an internal covenant, not an external one. Remember, I've said this over and over again. The law was all about ritual and ceremony and symbolism over substance. Understand that? Now, if you're hearing what I just said, you should be able to equate that to religious systems that are still in operation in the earth that still follow the old law pattern. It's all about symbolism over substance. It's all about rituals. It's all about ceremony, but it's not about heartfelt change. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to get born again and accept Jesus. Let's just dunk you underwater. You don't actually have to get filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's just do a ritual. Let's just, you know, slap you or do whatever, sprinkle something on you, and you got it. That's, that doesn't work. Anybody? I don't know about you, but I don't have time for the fake and the fraud. I want the real deal, amen. I want a real relationship with Jesus Christ. I want the real Holy Ghost in my life, amen. I don't want rituals and symbols. What You say, well, what is that? That's Old Testament. That's law. That, that's, that's legalistic religion. Isn't it sad that people still operate in that when there is a whole new covenant available that we can access by faith? Wow. 
so sad to still remain under the law when the law covenant's been eclipsed. So the Holy Spirit's involved, and he gets involved here, and he brings us into relationship. Uh, it's upon our hearts. It's on our minds. God says, "What I, I'll, I'll no longer remember your lawless deeds and your sins. That's a good thing. Blessed is the man whose sins are not remembered. So, you know, you and I are forgiven. We've got to learn to walk in that grace and forgive ourselves and accept that assurance that, you know, God has forgiven us and we've been translated from death to life. Uh, it's an internal covenant, not an external covenant. Remember, if all your faith and all your spirituality is external, you're under the law. Internal heart change, a relationship that's real, uh, real and filling of the Holy Spirit, that's all new covenant stuff. Uh, verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these things, an offering for sin is no longer required. There's the summary of that little uh, portion of text there. If you are now outside of the law in a relationship with God, you're not symbolism, you're not ceremony, but your real relationship, then what? You are forgiven, you, you are part of the family of God, and you don't have to go uh, for a continual offering over and over again. One and done, Jesus took care of it. Amen. Verse 19 through 25 describes the new life we experience by accepting a new covenant. It's built on better promises. It's built on better sacrifices. And we have a better high priest. You know, that's kind of the, uh, the, the book of Hebrews in a nutshell there. Verse 19, we can now approach God with confidence. Uh, if you're reading along with me as we're going through this text here, uh, verse 19 shows that, you know, we don't need to cower and run away from God. We approach with confidence. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, whoa, enter the holy place. Remember what that was all about? The high priest went in what? Once a year. And he had to go through all kinds of rituals. Why? Because there was no cross. There was no blood of Jesus to take care of sin. So they had to cover it up just enough that God could tolerate it so he could do his duty without being killed in the presence of a holy God. Wow. And now it just said here what? That we just come into the presence of God. We, we just, you know, uh, have access to the holy of holies. That's an amazing thing for us to think about. How many of us really utilize the access we have to God? How many of us really maximize the access we have to God in prayer? Think about all the things we'll do in a day and how little we pray. It's quiet. We've been given such a great treasure here to approach God, not with anxiety or terror like they did in the Old Testament, uh, they, they gathered around the mountain, the presence of God roared, and the people melted. But now it says here in 19, we can approach God with confidence. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 20, we have access to the holy presence by a new and living way. <laughs> Remember we said, who's the way? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. He died and rose again. That sacrifice gives us access to the presence of God. It's a powerful thing. He gives us access past the veil by his flesh. There's some interesting things being said there. Uh, his flesh was offered. His body was offered as a sacrifice. The veil is a reference to that covering that covered the Holy of Holies that, you know, only the high priest had access to. So we have access beyond the veil. What does that mean? Right into the presence of God. How? By the offering of Jesus' flesh for us. Yeah, I know some of this is kind of, you know, it's deep and it's, it's, it's detailed, but, you know, Hebrews wants us to understand all of what was accomplished in the cross. 
You know, as Christians, sometimes we just want the headlines. Just give me the headlines. Hebrews is not a headline book. It's a, it, you got to dig in there and grab, you know, there's some depth here. So I want you to get that. It's a, it's a new life experience. It's, it's a better way with uh, a path into the presence of God. Um, let's take a look at verse 21 powerful verse here it says and since we have a great high priest another theme of the book over the house of god let us approach god with a sincere heart full of assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water so uh it tells us here that because jesus is our high priest we should do several things uh, verse 22 says what let us approach god with a sincere heart so our Interaction with God shouldn't be religious. It shouldn't be ceremonial. It shouldn't be pomp and circumstance. We shouldn't uh, walk into the presence of God and try and use King James words to impress God. Hello, come on. Oh, thou art mighty goddess. Thou art so wonderful. You know, and, and, and like we, we, do you ever see people like religious people when they start talking about the Lord or praying, they almost get fake. What is that about? It's about not having a real relationship. Now, I'm not judging anybody. I want everybody to have a real relationship. You know, we can be fake, too, just as fake as anybody else. You know, we get used to the ritual of what we do here at Full Gospel Center, and we've disconnected our hearts, and we're just going through the motions. You know, that can happen. We can worship just going through the motions. We can give our offering. We come up. We say, thank you, Lord. We throw something in. You know, are we just going through the motions, or is it heartfelt? So let us approach God with a sincere heart. Verse 23, let us hold firm to our confession. So we don't graduate from the basics of the gospel. Uh, We don't graduate from the fact that Jesus Christ is everything to us. We hold firm to the confession. What is that confession? That Jesus Christ is Lord, that he raised He was risen from the dead that we are saved by what he did on Calvary's cross. Amen? The gospel. Hold firm to that. Verse 24, let us consider how to encourage one another. So encouragement is enjoined. You know, the body of Christ wasn't assembled just so, you know, Jesus can have an audience. The body of Christ was assembled in part so that we could strengthen each other. And, you know, that doesn't happen unless we get familiar with each other we need to we need to get past the casual and the you know the the detached and the superficial and and have some bonds with each other in the body of christ that you know there's intimacy there where if i'm hurting i can come to somebody i can call tom up on the phone and say tom i'm hurting would you pray for me let me tell you what's on my heart and 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 he'd be willing to listen anybody this is what we need in the body so uh, understand uh, we have to consider how we can encourage one another and the way we can do that is to have relationship and encourage one another in the lord when i'm hurting you can encourage me when i when you're hurting i can encourage you you know that's what we're here for each other you know i say this at weddings i say never forget to be grateful i say this to the bride and the groom never forget to be grateful for the gift of each other and that's one of the most powerful things that you could uh, you could remember in your marriage is that y- you're a gift to each other. The body of Christ, we're a gift to each other. And never, be, I know there's people at church, there's pe- people are people, sometimes, you know, they're, people are tough to deal with. They, we call them EGRs, extra grace required. Some people need extra. Anybody? If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's probably you. So, you know, I, people are people, but what an awesome gift we have in each other. 
So verse 25 says, let us not forsake the habit of uh, assembling ourselves together so much more as the day approaches. So this is important. Why? Uh, talking about church attendance and the, the assembling of the body of Christ. Let us not abandon our meeting together or forsake the assembly. So basically saying, you know, uh, we should continue to meet corporately as a church. Church is not an afterthought. Uh, us getting together is not just an extra thing. It's, it's what the body of Christ is for. On the Lord's day, we get together and we worship the Lord and we hear the word and you're here tonight on Wednesday getting an extra bonus. God bless you. But uh, don't forsake the assembling. This is an important verse for a lot of us, you know, now. Thank God you're here tonight, but there's a lot of Christians who are not in church anymore. And I begin to think about this today. In other states, you know, I talk to friends in other states, and I'm like, how's church? Well, we haven't been allowed to go. Wow. That's not good. You know what I found out? That if you... Stop doing the things that keep you strong in the Lord. You'll fill your life with other things. People who are not here on Wednesday night is not because they don't have time. It's because they filled their life with other things. I know some people work late, get home. I understand. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just saying that it's very easy for me and for you and for all of us. If we if we don't do the things God has required of us, we'll fill our lives with other things. It's, you know, something that will choke out our faith and it's a destructive thing. So God's kingdom has to be the priority. Uh, how you doing out there? I got a little more to go. Hanging in there? What time is it? I can't see the clock. That's dangerous. Don't worry. I want to go home. I got a I gotta, <laughs> beauty rest. Verse 26 through 39 provides some strong encouragement uh, to stay right with the Lord. And that's something that you and I have to understand. We need to stay right with the Lord. Because we can get out of, get out of sync with the Lord and those other things that pull us away from the things of God. Well, then we, we fill ourselves with stuff that draws us away from the Lord. Uh, verse 26 here, it says, For if we go on sinning willfully, say willfully, after the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? Let's just take a look there. Uh, the writer of Hebrews encouraging believers to hold fast to the solid doctrine and to stay right with God. Verse 26 shows us that repentance is mandatory. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. When we sin, we have to confess our sin. Some of the times we feel condemnation from the devil and conviction from the Holy Spirit is because we've sinned and we're believers and we didn't haven't bothered to confess our sin. It's quiet now. Well, I confessed my sin when I accepted Jesus. I came to the altar, you know, I cried a little bit, I got a pamphlet, and I went home and I'm done. No. 
Repentance is, is part of our Christian walk. It's part of our lifestyle. It's mandatory. It's a mandatory component of salvation. You can't even be saved without repentance. So we've got to repent of our sin. When we sin, we repent. Now, this willful sinning is talking about that's dangerous for a believer. When we know it's a sin, we continue to do it, and we don't repent of it. That's willful sinning, and it's dangerous, and it gets us out of step with the things of God, and before we know it, we backslide and we, we, we move away from Christ. Verse 27, people who will, willfully remain in sinful lifestyles always feel a great anxiety and, and you know, this, this, this cloud that kind of hangs over them. Why? Because they know that they're going to face the judgment of God. The, the saddest person you'll ever meet is one who knows they're a sinner, that they're going to answer to God for their sin, but they won't repent. And they go on willfully sinning. Now, this, this can happen uh, to, to all kinds of people. It happens to believers. There's empty chairs here tonight of people who used to sit in them, who loved the Lord, who went back into the world. What a dangerous thing to do here. It, it says what? That you have a terrifying expectation, the, the fury of fire. Verse 27, uh, by a terrifying expectation of judgment. Oh, that black cloud that hangs over a person's head when they're willfully sinning. And the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. You know, and then verse 28 uh, and 29 there talk about the penalty for breaking the law of Moses. Two or three witnesses, you break the law of Moses, you know, you, you could be held accountable. The death penalty was on the table for those type of things there. Then he says, how much more severe punishment do you think those who trample underfoot the Son of God? I mean, if, if your life can be taken away for breaking a, a law, how much more for trampling Jesus, the blood of Jesus? It, it, it goes on to talk about, you know, the, the fact that we, we would offend the Holy Spirit. How much more severe punishment do you think you will deserve having trampled underfoot the Son of God as regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant? So treading on the blood of Jesus by which he was sanctified. Listen, and has insulted the spirit of grace. So <laughs> blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, very serious thing. Jesus said, all sins will be forgiven. You sin against me, it'll be forgiven. But if you sin against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. So, you know, I, I don't want to go into that too deep because it freaks a lot of people out. But if you're thinking, man, I, I, I hope I didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you haven't. Because if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, your conscience will be so seared that you won't even care if you did. Okay, understand that. So, you get pastors get phone calls. I think I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I don't think you did. Go back to sleep. <laughs> but there's a very real possibility here of trampling these things. Why? Because when we get saved and then we willfully go back into sinful lifestyles, it creates a, a huge problem. It creates a black cloud over our head of impending judgment. What's the answer? Repent. Repentance is always the answer, amen? When we sin, we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So there's the procedure there. Don't willfully sin. Don't stay in sinful lifestyles. Don't kid yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Repent, amen? Uh, verse 32 through 36, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that we've already endured a lot of things, conflicts, suffering, insults made in public, 
uh, lumped together with fellow outcasts. Verse 34, uh, some had everything taken away from them. They lost all their possessions. We don't realize what it cost some of these early believers to follow Christ. They became ostracized by society. Uh, for, for Jewish people, that they would be you know, kicked out of that. There were uh, Pharisees and, and, and religious leaders who got saved, and it cost them everything. Look what it says here. Uh, you know, verse 34, for you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How many people would like to lose everything they, they have and do it joyfully? Does it, don't raise your hand. <laughs> I mean, do you think you could even do that? I mean, I would be at least in a bad mood for a couple days. You know, then I'd try to get a good legal team together. But these people lost everything. And they did it joyfully. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, you, you've come so far. You've, you've, uh, you've done so much. You've, you've endured so many things. Don't shrink back now. Don't go back to the old lifestyle now. Don't get stuck in, you know, this idea of willfully sinning and, and being estranged from God. No, you've come way too far. You've endured so many things to the point where some of them had lost everything. You know, it was like Peter said to them, Lord, where can we go? Who else but you has the words of life? And so that's it. We give everything we have to the Lord and we burn our bridges so there is no going back, amen? So there is no going back to sin. Uh, verse 35 and 36 encourage us to remain confident in Christ and, and that there is a need for endurance. Endurance is a, an important part of the Christian faith. Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. Oh, that's a word for all of us right now, that we would endure, that we would endure hardship and suffering and disappointment, that we would be willing to endure these things for the kingdom of God, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. How sad would it be for some people to run the race, 90% of the race, and quit while the finish line is in sight? and go back into the world. Man, the devil takes such pleasure in that. But that can't be our testimony, amen? We've got to endure to the end. We need endurance. We need to, you know, remain confident. Confident in what? That Jesus is the only way, that there's nothing to go back to, that the world has nothing to offer any of us anymore. Come on, the, the, the lies and the smoke and the mirrors about the, the pleasures and of sin and the things of the world, man, we, we figured out that that's a lie. You know, I, I couldn't go back to that old lifestyle. It's so empty. So hold on to your confidence. Get some endurance. And be 100% committed to go the long haul until you finish the race. But don't willfully go back into sinful habits and lifestyles. It's such a destructive thing to the soul. Don't let the enemy win. Stay close to Jesus. The enemy will do whatever he can to make you look back so you'll quit on God, you'll quit on yourself. He can't steal your salvation. He can only get you to quit on God and quit on yourself and go back to the old ways, amen? Even then, God dispatches the Holy Spirit like the hound of heaven to come after us because God's married to the backslider, amen? So don't even think it'll be easy for you to do that. Amen? Some people are allowing to try it out, you know. <laughs> Give it a try. All right. Your arms are too short to box with God. The Holy Spirit knows how to get you. Come on. 
Some people have tried. Remember the prodigal son? He found himself after squandering all his inheritance in a pig pen, wanting to fill his belly with pig food. And then the Bible says he came to his senses. And he said, I'm going home. I'll be one of my father's servants. They got plenty of food. And you know the rest of the story, but... Stay close to Jesus, 37 through 39. Jesus will be faithful. He'll come after us. He'll come for us one way or the other. Uh, he's going he's gonna, to, he's the author and the finisher of our faith, so he will complete the work he started in us. Verse 38, we've got to live by faith. That's important. But my righteous one will live by faith. The currency of the kingdom is faith. If you've got no faith, you're broke in the kingdom of God. Amen. So develop your faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. So God says that right there. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And doubt and unbelief offends God. So if we have doubt and unbelief and we don't have faith and, and, and we're, you know, half in the world and half out, God takes no pleasure in that. Just as he took no pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices, amen, he wants a relationship with us built on intimacy with thankful hearts, Shrinking back means abandoning the faith and the hope that led us to Christ and uh, believing the lie uh, that takes us, you know, back into the world. Verse 39, last verse. But we are not among those who shrink back, amen, to destruction, but of those who have faith for the safekeeping of the soul. That's our testimony, amen. We don't shrink back. We don't backslide. We don't willfully sin. We don't practice lawlessness. If we sin, we repent. If we get estranged from God, we seek restoration. What a great high priest we have. Father, we just thank you tonight for this chapter. There was a lot in there, and I know that a lot of it went through us and over us, but Lord, I know you tucked some of it in us. And for each of us, what you tucked in there is exactly what we needed to hear tonight. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you for that. We thank you for Hebrews chapter 10. And we ask, Lord God, that we remember uh, it's a new life that we're living. We're not in the old covenant. We're in the new covenant. It's the blood of the lamb. It's about intimacy that we can go beyond the veil and have communion with the Father, that we could have fellowship with Jesus Christ. And Father, help us to avail what you purchased for us on the cross, that we wouldn't waste our time pursuing the things of the world that only suck us back into the world, but we would be kingdom people uh, using faith and endurance to grow and, and fulfill our kingdom purposes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.